Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. If you're responsible for the financial well-being of any company, you've probably heard about Avalara. And if not, listen up. Avalara are the folks who simplify sales tax for businesses of all kinds. As we've covered on this podcast, there are endless complications in sales tax. For example, if you buy deodorant in Texas, you're going to get charged sales tax, but not if you buy antiperspirant. Who would know this stuff? Well, Avalara does, because they keep track of thousands and thousands of products and how they're taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions in the United States alone. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash tax notes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara. Tax compliance. Done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, EU policy update. 2021 is shaping up to be a busy year for the European Commission, as its tax directorate looks to tackle a range of international tax issues, from the digital economy to tax avoidance in the EU. Here to talk more about what lies ahead for the European Commission is Tax Notes reporter Sarah Paez. Sarah, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you recently spoke with someone from the European Commission. Can you tell us who you spoke with and what you talked about? So I talked with Benjamin Angel. He's the director of direct taxation at the Commission's Directorate General for Taxation and Customs Union. Mr. Angel is he's no stranger to government. He joined the Commission in 1994, but he started working on tax only about a year and a half ago. So we discussed some of the big tax initiatives the Commission plans to tackle this year, which include a proposed EU-wide digital levy, a carbon border adjustment mechanism, and a revision of the Energy Taxation Directive. All right. Now, before we get to that interview, I should note for listeners that as we've been doing lately, we recorded this over Zoom. So please excuse any background noises you might hear since we're kind of in uncontrolled environments these days. All right. Let's go to that interview. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mr. Angel. To get us started, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into public service and come to lead direct taxation at the European Commission's Directorate General for Taxation and Customs Union? Challenging question. I was always attracted by the public service, and I've always been a true believer in the European Code. So the best way to reconcile the two was to work for the European Commission, which I joined a very long time ago in 1994. At that time, we had only 12 member states. Now we're 27, so it has changed quite a lot since then. I'm a relatively newcomer in the field of taxation, where I arrived only a year and a half ago. Before, I've done my career essentially on economic, monetary, and financial issues. In my previous position, I was a director of the Treasury and financial operation of the European Commission. But I do enjoy a lot this field of taxation. And at the moment, I also enjoy a double act since I'm in charge not only of direct taxation, but also of indirect taxation. So the whole spectrum, basically. So a newcomer to taxation, but not a newcomer to government. Just to launch right in on issues of taxation, the commission has had to delay the publication of a communication on business taxation, which according to the roadmap will lay out a new vision for corporate taxation to meet the needs of this increasingly globalized economy. So I was wondering to hear from you, what can we expect from the upcoming communication on business taxation? This communication will uh, not only uh, analyze the main challenges we are facing, it will also announce policy initiative in a number of fields. 
policy initiative to help supporting the recovery, policy initiative to uh, help facing our global challenges and not of those which are OECD related, but also new actions to deepen our fight against tax avoidance, tax evasion, and to step up our effort to ensure tax transparency. So you will have a, a lot of big tickets actually in this communication, which is the uh, reason why it takes time to prepare the recipe. Uh, we want to be sure that we, we deliver a, a savory dish for all uh, the tax lovers. And that should be the case. That will be an interesting reading, I can ensure you. Absolutely. And we are looking forward to reading it. Well, speaking of the recovery, so one of the hot button issues facing the EU right now is how to propose and approve these new levies and taxes that we're referring to as new own resources to pay for the spending incurred during the coronavirus pandemic. So what can you tell us about the Commission's expected proposals in June for an EU-wide digital levy, a carbon border adjustment mechanism, and the revision of the Energy Taxation Directive? I'm in charge of only two of the three. So that's a preliminary warning. I'm not in charge of the uh, emission uh, trading scheme. But first, a word on the package. What has been agreed between Council and Parliament and the Commission is that we should have new own resources which cover the cost of repaying the debt that the Commission will take on the market to finance next generation EU. In concrete terms, it does mean that we need more or less 15 billion euro a year from the package. Then what has to come from each element of the package is obviously a delicate and highly political discussion. If you take the emission trading scheme, much will depend on the extension of the emission training scheme to new field. For instance, will there be an extension to transport? Will there be an extension to uh, heating? For the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the key parameter will be first, what sectors will be covered initially. The commission has been clear that we will cover a limited number of sectors and exclusively raw material at the beginning to uh, gain experience with the process with possible extension to a more complex product down the road. Second element that will be key is what happens with free allowances under the emission training scheme. Today, free allowances are given to producers as a way to uh, reduce the risk of carbon leakage. That is the risk that European industries might move out of the European Union to countries where carbon requirement would be uh, far lower, or the risk that we substitute domestic production with imports facing lower carbon uh, requirements. If we establish a carbon border adjustment mechanism, by definition, the first natural question that comes up is what happened to the free allowances in the sector's concern? It's an issue for which the views tend to vary sharply, and we have probably seen that the European Parliament itself has been quite split uh, last week in this issue, almost half-half. Depending on the base of disappearance of free allowances, if such a decision is taken, the money generated by the carbon border adjustment mechanisms will be significant or less significant. Because by definition, we need to ensure for the carbon border adjustment mechanisms full WTO compatibility. And the key principle is that we should, under no circumstances, treat better the domestic producer 
that we would treat the foreign producers of the product we import. So that is a natural limit to what we can do with the carbon border adjustment mechanisms and to how much it can generate in its package. Then the third component is a digital levy. It is undoubtedly a complex one in view of the longstanding ongoing discussion in the OECD and uh, of the new impetus given to uh, those discussions by the change of US administration. We are working on a proposal that will have different narrative than the one of the OECD. The OECD work is clearly about, first, it's not about taxing, it's about sharing a taxable base uh, primarily for the digital sector, even though there is a push now again to go for a much broader scope, because we have difficulties traditionally to tax the digital sector uh, where uh, there is no physical presence. But for a number of reasons, the OECD framework is affecting, at the end of the day, uh, a very limited number of companies. The exact number will depend on the turnover threshold that is retained. But for, for Europe, for instance, with the current turnover threshold, 750 million, we're talking of something like 40 companies. And if ever the turnover threshold were raised, I don't know, for instance, to 5 billion, we would be talking of around 9 to 10 companies. We have thousands of companies operating in the digital sector in Europe. And the digital sector is somehow the main winner of some kind of structural change in our economy. So it is our opinion that the issue of taxing the digital sector goes somehow well beyond what is being taxed, in the, what is being discussed in the OECD. What is being discussed with the OECD is extremely important and we are uh, extremely supportive of this process. We want it to succeed, but it is not because there would be an agreement in the OECD covering a handful of companies. That's it. No one else should not do uh, anything about any other company anywhere in the world. I think that would be an excessive view. We are therefore uh, preparing a proposal that will be articulated with the OECD that will have different purposes and that will uh, help also addressing our requirement, which is generate a sufficient number of own resource for the union budget, because this is a mandate that we have received from the head of state and government, the ministers and the European Parliament. Thank you so much for that very detailed, but also broad explanation of the digital levy. And I just wanted to ask a follow-up to that. So you yourself and many member leadership of the European Union and the European Commission have said that, you know, if an agreement is not delivered on the two-pillar approach at the OECD level, that the EU will come forward with its own proposal. But from what you told me, it sort of sounds like now, if the agreement is not to the EU's liking, or if it does not cover the amount of companies that the EU would like to see covered, that you will, in fact, still be coming forward with a proposal. And so I wanted to ask, first of all, is that true? Did I get that right? And then second of all, how might that affect you know smaller businesses, businesses that have lower turnover than, say, these really large multinational corporations because I believe that there was some concern among these startup companies who felt that, you know, maybe that they would be threatened by a digital levy of some sort. What would you say to that? Well, I think the way you put thing is the way we used to put it until the summer of last year. In the summer of last year, the head of state and government have decided that the digital levy should be one of the components for financing the union budget. And in the autumn, an interinstitutional agreement has been found mandating that we create a digital levy. So we are no longer 
operating under plan A, uh, let's have the OECD, and plan B, uh, let's do something if the OECD does not deliver. We are operating under a double plan A, if I may, which is we want the OECD. It is extremely important that an international agreement is found on both pillars. But we also need, for other reasons, to construct some other form of taxation that would affect the digital sector for other reasons than the one which are under discussion at the OECD for funding our budget. And this has nothing to do with whether the OECD will succeed or not. We are reasonably confident that the OECD will succeed now. I think the Biden administration is a game changer in this discussion. But the OECD agreement is about sharing a taxable base. It's not about generating income for the union budget. And with the level under discussion, it would not only affect a very small number of companies, it would also lead to a rather limited redistribution of taxable income. This is not a criticism. Uh, I think it is a, a major step, and as such, the step matters more than the initial level, but it does not fit the requests that we have received. The request that we have received is that we need some form of taxation of the digital sector for financing the union budget. Today, you have very different form of taxation of the digital sector. You have a form which are related to the corporate income tax, and this is very much the heart of the discussion in the OECD. But there are other taxes on the digital sector. For instance, uh, some companies of the digital sector are subject in some member state to a digital levy on their turnover for financing artistic creation. Some member states today have digital services tax. Everyone has a value-added tax, which is also affecting the digital sector. So I think while defending and pushing as much as we can the OECD, we should not fall into the trap of considering that the OECD is leading to the only form of taxation that exists in the world. That's not the case. It's, it's a major progress to put in place a formal reapportionment. But obviously, there is today and there will still be tomorrow different form of taxation affecting these companies being turnover, being uh, taxation on the energy efficiency of their building or, or of their computer or whatever you can think of, that's normal. And we have to keep in mind, again, that the number of companies potentially affected in Europe is considerably bigger than the one under discussion at the OECD. So this has nothing to do with the digital levy with what you may have read a few years ago about the UPN wanting to tax the GAFA. This is not what we're discussing. Taxing the GAFA, this is what the OECD is about, or rather sharing the taxable base of the GAFA and the other key players. What we're discussing here is having a fair taxation of the digital sector in its diversity, so as to take into account the fact that it is a structural beneficiary of the economic transition that is ongoing. This has been even more highlighted in the recent period, but even, even before the pandemic, it was there already. Now, the pandemic has, has just made it more visible. Will it affect small companies? 
Firstly, we have to wait for the final arbitrage of the Commission first and then Member States when they see the proposal. But uh, it is rather unlikely that we target the SMEs and, and the startup. But in between uh, the SMEs and the digital giants that are targeting, uh, that are targeted by the OECD, uh, there is actually a huge number of companies in Europe. I think it will be a very interesting process to watch as the EU continues to look for new revenue sources for next generation EU. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. If you're hearing this, you're clearly interested in taxes and you might benefit from checking out our sponsor or you might know someone who will. The UC Irvine Law School offers a one-year, full-time program that's been ranked the number one graduate tax program on the West Coast. Students can expect a unique academic experience that combines in-depth doctrinal work and practical perspective to prepare students for successful careers in tax law. The small student-to-faculty ratio also ensures that students get the attention they need to succeed. Applications are open now. For non-U.S. applications, the deadline is April 1st, 2021. For U.S.-based students, the deadline is July 1st. To apply today, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. So I wanted to switch gears just a little bit to tax evasion and tax avoidance and what the commission is doing to prevent those. So you've said that the EU Code of Conduct Group for Business Taxation must be reformed to be more transparent and more effective in preventing distortive measures and tax regimes in EU member states. So I was wondering, you know, how will the Commission spur this reform and what types of initiatives or proposals are planned? There are ongoing discussions covering both the domestic and international part of the Code of Conduct. So for the domestic part of the Code of Conduct, the one that applies to EU member states, the Commission has proposed in July to reform the mandate of the Code of Conduct. The current mandate is very old. It's been established in 1997, never been revised since then, and it focuses primarily on preferential measures. What is meant is primarily treating foreigners better than the way you treat your domestic company so as to artificially attract them. The code has been very effective in addressing distortive tax regime, which were uh, producing an harmful effect. But somehow it has reached a bit the limit of what it can achieve for a number of reasons, but also because some member states have learned with experience how to design regime, which can sometimes be very distortive but without any preferential feature, which uh, make the code of conduct relatively powerless to address it. So we want to broaden the mandate of the code of conduct to the general aspect of the tax regime, to make it possible to have a discussion among member states on whether a given regime is producing harmful effect, even though it is not constructed in a preferential way. This discussion has started. Uh, we have had several rounds already uh, with member state. It's a difficult discussion. It's not a surprise. So we did not expect this discussion to uh, miraculously come to uh, an overnight conclusion. So certainly uh, it will still take many more months before we get there. But today, the idea is already supported by the vast majority of member states. We need to move from the vast majority of member states to some form of consensus. And that's a challenge of the coming months. 
I don't think that anyone should fear anything because a discussion remains a collective discussion, but it would somehow allow a more effective multilateral discussion of problematic tax regime. And as such, it remains one of our priorities. As regards the external part of the code of conduct, we have also uh, a number of important changes which are coming up. First, we will need to start implementing new criteria, which were already agreed on in principle. Uh, one of them is, for instance, checking the presence of an accessible register of beneficial ownership in third countries. We are starting to send letters, actually, to some uh, third country. We will not start the exercise of asking third countries to take commitment now, because it has been agreed that as long as we are in the pandemic we will refrain from requesting third countries to take new commitment, but we are flagging to the third countries that it's coming up. And we will uh, start enforcing it once the pandemic is over and, and once our member states have also done their work, because there is a standard principle that we always follow. We never ask third countries to do things that would not be asked to our member states first. Some of them are late in transposing, unfortunately, the requirement existing in the legislation. But it's coming up and it will be a big change. The other important change that is coming up is more attention to effectiveness. Our approach so far is a bit too legalistic. That is, uh, we look at the legal framework, we say, oh, there is this problem in the legal framework, can you please change it? And we ask third country to subscribe to the international agreement on the exchange of tax information, which is a must do. But somehow, for the moment, we don't really pay attention to the question, by the way, when our member states make a request for tax information, do they get an answer? And that is certainly something we have to pay more attention to in the future. That is effectiveness of the implementation of the requirement. It will call for some effort, but it is also a step that we intend to take. Third, once there is an agreement on Pillar 2, and once we have transposed Pillar 2 in the European Union, the Commission will certainly push for making a requirement on third country to subscribe to the Pillar 2 OECD Common Agreement. So we will use again the mechanics of the listing not to impose unilaterally our rules, but to encourage vigorously third country to subscribe to good international practices. And in that sense, the experience we have is that it can be quite a powerful tool. The last thing that is coming up is a broadening of the geographic scope. So far, we are covering a little bit less than half of the planet, 95 countries. We will start the discussion next week on broadening the geographic scope. It doesn't mean that we will start approaching third country, new third countries immediately, because again, because of the pandemic, we take our time. But it means that we will start a discussion on what are the next countries that we will screen. And once we have an agreement and the pandemic is behind us, we will start screening them effectively. And just a note for our listeners, the Pillar 2 agreement would be on a global minimum effective tax rate. So just wanted to put that out there. But yes, that sounds like a very full plate in terms of the EU blacklist for non-cooperative jurisdictions and the Code of Conduct Group for Business Taxation. One thing I wanted to follow up on with that as well is there has been some talk in the European Parliament, as I'm sure you're aware of, of holding member states accountable in a similar way that third countries are held accountable for harmful tax practices. Has there been any discussion or movement on that within the Commission in terms of 
say a country like Malta, for example, having not met the benchmark of clearing better tax practices. Is there any sort of discussion about maybe not sanctioning member states, but somehow holding them accountable to make sure that they're not engaging in any type of harmful tax practices? Malta has received a partially compliant uh, note from the Global Forum on issues related to the easiness of access to the information contained in register for beneficial ownership. Again, the concerns of the Global Forum were not on the willingness of Malta to answer the request, but rather on the timeliness of the answers. We take it very seriously, and as soon as, soon as we receive the information that there was such a rating from the Global Forum, which is unprecedented huh, for one of our member states, and the Commission has organized discussion with Malta to make sure that the problem identified are addressed. You have to know also that the Global Forum rating is very backward-looking. Huh? So de facto, uh, when a rating comes up, usually it, it relates to a situation which is at least a year and a half, if not two years old. Meanwhile, many things have been already implemented in Malta. I cannot guarantee the situation is perfect. I don't speak on behalf of the Maltese Authority, certainly. But what I can tell you is that we will monitor it very closely. Now, we are, I'm aware, obviously, that the European Parliament would like some kind of system of scoring in the state on, on tax practices, which is something NGOs do uh, on a regular basis. There has been discussion between Commissioner Gentiloni and uh, the competent committee in the European Parliament where the Commissioner has expressed openness to examine further the question. We will assess what is possible. We, we have also a new kid in town this year which is the, the recently created EU Tax Observatory, which is a new body created by uh, the Commission with uh, a financing from the European Parliament, but which operates on a completely independent base, and uh, which would be uh, edited by uh, a well-known figure of the tax world, which is uh, Gabriel Zuckman, an expert in uh, wealth tax. And one possibility could be that this uh, independent body is entrusted with this task if, if such a decision is taken. I cannot make any promise at this stage. We, we're looking into it. But what I always recall to the European Parliament when I get the question is that we never, ever ask third country to do things that are not mandatory on our member state. It doesn't mean that the situation in our member state is perfect. It may happen that some of them are in a situation where they breach some part of the union legislation. But when it is the case, we open an infringement procedure and if need be, we bring them to court. But we are not in a situation where we would be more demanding for third countries that we are domestic. Nevertheless, the situation is not perfect in the European Union. There are clearly practices here and there that we deem problematic, and, and the European Commission is pointing at them regularly via the process of the so-called country-specific recommendation under the European semester, where the Council of Ministers itself has endorsed for six countries that there are practices which are qualified as aggressive tax planning. So clearly, it is not a secret. It is admitted you will find EU document endorsed by member state saying that there is a problem in this member state. We want them to change. We are using also the process of establishment of the national plan under the uh, Recovery and Resolution Fund to engage with those member states to incentivize them also to do the right thing. 
and we will continue this cooperative discussion with member states to make sure that they adjust their tax practice where need be. Some, for instance, like the Netherlands, have already announced important changes to their tax legislation. So we are not in a situation where we uh, preach in, in the middle of the desert and <laughs> no one listens. Certainly wish that uh, the six uh, would address the aggressive tax planning issues that has been identified quickly. There is good progress for most of them, but insufficient progress at the same time. And that's the reason why the discussion continues. And speaking of, you know, what member states can do to crack down on aggressive tax planning within their own borders, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Commission's work on the eighth directive on administrative cooperation and taxation, known as DAC 8, which, you know, expands information exchange to crypto assets and electronic money. The Commission just had opened a consultation into DAC 8. So I wanted to ask, what is the status of DAC 8? And why do you think it's important for the EU's fight against tax fraud and tax evasion? We are trying to improve year after year the exchange of tax information between member states who has to better equip them to fight tax evasion and tax fraud. And each year, bring a new dimension. So last year, for instance, with DAX 7, uh, we have foreseen an obligation on internet platform to communicate information on the activities of the seller, which can be you and I on Airbnb or uh, an Uber driver or whatever, which is important from a taxation point of view. Now, what we want to address in DAX 8 is a growing segment of the financial activity, which is crypto assets. And that is a segment for which there is insufficient transparency on the activity at the moment. There is an important ongoing work in the OECD. The Commission has also uh, proposed a legal framework for crypto assets, which is the so-called MICA proposal. So what does it mean in terms of calendar? First, we have the public consultation, as you rightly point, which is ongoing. And I, we, I encourage all those who listen to the podcast to, to participate to this public consultation. It's an important step for us in the establishment of any legislation. And once we have the result of this public consultation, but also once there is, let's say, a stabilization of the OECD discussion at a point which is very clear and likely to move and a relatively stable point also in the discussion on the new uh, MICA regulation, then we will propose a new directive which will build on what is agreed in the OECD and potentially complement it. Because very often we do the OECD plus, that is we take the OECD as a basis and we add a level of ambition. That's what we have done for DAX7, for instance. DAX7, for the activity of the sellers on the internet platform, you have an OECD agreement that covers services. We have covered goods and services. So we have gone beyond. We might do the same for DAC 8. The other thing that DAC 8 will do is harmonize sanctions. Because in the seven directives that exist today, there is usually a formula which is member state must foresee a dissuasive and proportionate sanction. And while we do have this proportionate sanction in the majority of cases. We have identified a number of cases for which we have legitimate questions. We have even some member states, to give you an example, which foresee fines on banks of 5,000 euro. Spontaneously, I have some doubts on whether a 5,000 euro fine is and proportionate for a bank. So we clearly need to clarify a bit further 
the sanction and, and bring some kind of uh, harmony on a practice which is a bit too divergent at the moment. And that would be also the second target of DAC8. We may have others because we, we use each uh, new DAC each year to fix also some problems that were experienced in the practice of the existing DAC. That has been the case in DAC 7, for instance, where we have clarified joint audit, foreseeable relevance, and stuff like this. We'll see. Work in progress. Thank you for that update on DAC 8 and looking forward to seeing the proposal once it comes out. So again, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about this concept of unanimity in tax voting matters and what some see as this push from the commission for ending unanimity in tax matters. So I believe it was last year, the EU proposed the creation of a value-added tax comitology committee in December, and that would give the commission power in overseeing the adoption of some VAT areas. So some officials and observers have said this could mean that some VAT issues effectively will be agreed through qualified majority voting. What do you think of this assessment? And do you think the comitology committee will be a step forward in tax matters? Let me start with a general question. Yes, there is no doubt that the Commission would strongly prefer that taxation is treated like any other field in the treaty, that is, ordinary legislative procedure. The fact that we still use unanimity and that the Parliament has virtually no role is an anomaly. Taxation is a bit the dinosaur part of the treaty. There is no quick fix to this. I probably anticipate your next question, which is the possible use of Article 116 of the treaty, which is under ordinary legislative procedure, that is qualified majority in both council and parliament. The commission has flagged its intention to make a proposal making use of Article 116, but there is a lot of misreading of this article. This article is not allowing to circumvent the unanimity requirement existing on taxation, if I may add, unfortunately. This article just allows us to address some problem in some member state stemming from regimes that would produce distortive effect or practices that would produce distortive effects. So we could not, I don't know, adopt a DAC 8 or a digital levy or whatever you can think of using this article. The only way to move away from the unanimity requirement would be to change the treaty. I guess it's fair to say that the appetite for treaty changes anywhere in Europe is pretty low today. The reason being that a number of member state treaty changes call for referendums, and the experience with referendums has not been always the easiest one, to put it mildly. Now, on your specific question, I would not link it, this issue of the VAT committee, to the issue of unanimity uh, versus QMV. VAT rules are adopted by unanimity. They will remain adopted by unanimity. The problem that we are trying to address is very technical and narrow somehow, which is the existence of different interpretation of some element of the existing VAT directive. We have a VAT committee which take interpretation which are not binding, and therefore some member states follow them, some don't, and we end up with an avalanche of court cases and the ECJ having sometimes to enter into really nitty-gritty field which may be relevant for a specific plaintiff of the case, but not necessarily of general nature. So the idea behind the proposal of the Commission is not to push QMV, it is just to facilitate the adoption of binding common interpretation. 
it would still need to be endorsed by a member state. It is true that the mechanics for endorsing it by a member state would not be based on unanimity, but would be based on the ordinary procedure existing for comitology. But that's really not the issue. This is not power grabbing. This is not trying to push QMV at all costs. This is just trying to make sure that it's an it's, it's extremely complex piece of legislation, which is a VAT today, which is almost a thousand page <laughs> piece of legislation. We equip ourselves collectively. And when I say we, I say the European Union member state with the mechanisms that allow us collectively to come up with common interpretation to the benefit of those which have to apply the rules be it the companies or the member states themselves, because the member states suffer also in all cross-border cases where they uh, implement different interpretation of the same rule. So we've covered upcoming and current initiatives that the commission is working on related to taxation. Are there any others that the commission is planning specifically this year? You don't have to go into extensive detail, but just anything that we might have missed in our conversation. I think you got the gist in our conversation. We will also have an important revision of the Energy Taxation Directive, which is coming up in June. So at the same time as the digital levy of the carbon border adjustment mechanism, it is an extremely important piece of legislation because taxation of energy uh, de facto affects the whole economy in one go. And the existing directive is superbly outdated. It set minimum rates of taxation. And those minimum have never been indexed since 2003. So you can imagine how relevant those minimums are today. So uh, there is a need for uh, reshaping this directive and also making it fit better with the priorities of the Green Deal, since this uh, directive gives also today indirect subsidies to fossil fuels, which is not exactly the priority of the moment, if I may. (laughs) We want to make it more effective and smarter from a green point of view. And that is another big rendezvous coming up in June. With the end of the coronavirus pandemic, you know, at least on the horizon, I wanted to ask you for fun, what's a place you've always wanted to visit? It's a bit difficult to answer for a reason uh, which is not the one you think. Uh, The reason is I'm a compulsive traveler. So I have already visited more than 100 countries, which I guess more than the average. So my to-do list is shrinking year after year. But there are still places which uh, I would like to visit, obviously. Some which I've dreamed of visiting for decades, but somehow it's never the right moment, like Yemen, for instance. It's like a very beautiful country, but unfortunately, it never reached uh, a situation where it's uh, safe to visit. So um, I would have to wait patiently for the end of the pandemic and uh, look at the countries which uh, will allow vaccinated people uh, to travel. Um, But rest assured that as soon as I have the possibility, um, I will enjoy traveling again because like everyone, I I miss it a lot. Yes, I very much understand that. Well, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast, Mr. Angel. I really appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now from her home is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Janelle Julian. Janelle, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Monty Jackal considers Subchapter K, arguing that it's time for Congress to simplify it. Andrew Blair Stanek and Benjamin Van Derm demonstrate an artificial intelligence tool that can complete analogies in tax law and provide evidence-based guidance on how Congress can renumber IRC sections in tax reform efforts. 
In Tax Notes State, Brian Hamer reviews the MTC's revisions to its Statement of Information regarding PL 86-272 and reactions to its proposal. Robert Plattner discusses proposed New York legislation that would impose an excise tax on the collection of data about New York consumers for commercial use. On the Opinions page, Martin Sullivan discusses how South Korea annually enlists the support of its nation's popular celebrities to promote tax compliance and what that says about taxpayer morale as an intangible asset. Marisa Perry examines the requirements for information sharing from digital platforms to their gig workers under the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. Nana Amasarfo argues that unwinding digital services taxes will be easier said than done, particularly in developing countries. And now, for a closer look at what's to come in TaxNotes International, here is TaxNotes Executive Editor Jasper Smith. Thanks, Janelle. I'm here with Nicholas Curia, counsel with Conyers Dillon Perman in the British Virgin Islands. We're going to discuss his recent Tax Notes International piece suitably titled Tax in the British Virgin Islands, Separating Myth from Reality. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thanks for having me on. So to begin, can you just tell us a little bit about your article? It's essentially the practitioner's view of offshore financial centers and the BVI in particular. The premise there is trying to present sort of a more balanced view as to how the jurisdiction, uh, BVI in particular, international financial centers operates in reality and in practice, balancing out some of the things that people may have heard about offshore financial centers from the press. So it's an exposition, an explanation of how we operate, the legal framework, and you know the reasons for using BVI vehicles in the first place. So that's sort of the thrust of the article. And can you tell us a little bit about what led you to write on this particular topic? I think it's driven by wanting to correct some of the misunderstanding that's out there in relation to international financial centers, focusing on the BVI in particular, and just wanting to ensure that when practitioners in other jurisdictions are considering structuring issues around you know, transactions or corporate holding structures, that you know, they are making a decision based on you know, an informed view of you know, how things operate in offshore jurisdictions. So the idea really came from wanting to sort of have that redress, that balance. In the article, we sort of covered there's sort of three main themes to it. There's a discussion on tax neutrality, which is in reality how the BVI and jurisdictions like the BVI operate and what that means in practice. The second sort of theme in, in the article is the international standards to which the BVI adheres and complies with, with regard to regulation, uh, in particular on money laundering and terrorist financing, which you know will run counter to what people may have understood from, again, from what's in the press. And the third theme is really around ownership of BVI entities, you know, beneficial ownership. Again, the sort of popular misconception is that, you know, it's, it's obscured and shrouded in mystery, which isn't quite correct in terms of how the ownership and visibility of ownership of BVI entities, you know, really operates in practice. So those are the three main themes. As I said, I'll round off with an explanation as to why people would even be considering BVI entities and what are the benefits of doing so. Well, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate you choosing Tax Notes as your publication form, and we appreciate you taking your time out today to talk with us. Can you tell listeners where they can find you online? Sure. To contact me, you can do so by email. My email address is uh, nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dot courier, K-U-R-I-A at conyers.com. 
We have a firm website, which is www.conyers.com. And people can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, certainly here to help answer questions, discuss any of the points raised in the article, and generally advise on sort of structuring issues or specific issues relating to BVI or offshore financial centers in general. Excellent. And of course, you can find Nick's article at Tax Notes. Dot com And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Analyst, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in tax notes. Again, that's Tax Analyst with an S. Back to you, Dave. You can read all that and a lot more in the pages of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. Before we go, a note of congratulations. Tax Analyst, Chief Economist, Contributing Editor, and recent guest of the podcast, Martin A. Sullivan, has been named the recipient of the National Tax Association's 2021 Davey Davis Public Service Award. This annual award honors NTA members who have served the public by providing insight and advice on taxation and government finance. On behalf of all of us here at Tax Analysts, congratulations, Marty. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxDew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at TaxNotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.